Hey, welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jeff Simmons. I'm the lead pastor here at Rolling Hills, and I am so glad that you've tuned in today. Today, Lifeway President Ben Mandrell is preaching, and we're going to be talking from 1 John chapter 4 as we continue our series, A Beautiful Life. And we are studying 1 John, and it is going to be deep and rich today. So welcome, Ben Mandrell. Well, good morning. Great to be with you. If you brought a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up to 1 John chapter 4, which is where you're in the series. And uh, Jeff, thank you for giving me the opportunity to preach. It's just an honor to be an active member or partner here, uh, but also uh, get to preach today. So it's great to be with you. I want to start with the word discrimination. It's a dirty feeling word, isn't it? Uh, Discrimination. According to the definition, it's the unjust treatment of different categories of people, especially on the grounds of race, age, or sex. So in this way, discrimination is something that we would never want our children to do. We would try to parent that out of them. And yet it's part of what it means to be a human being, isn't it? That we just, deep down, we know it's wrong to judge a person or discount a person by the way they look because they... Uh, have a a certain color of skin or because they have ink over their forearms or uh, because of their hairstyle. One guy has, you know, a few hairs coming out of his head and the lady next to him has this voluminous structure of hair. It's wrong for us to make a, a determination on the value of a person by the way they look, and yet we do it all the time. Scripture says that we, we can't help ourselves. Man looks at the outward appearance, but what? God looks at the heart. So discrimination is with us It's part of the brokenness of humanity, but it's not something that we desire. And yet the dictionary gives us a second definition of the word that I think is helpful for us as we set up 1 John chapter 4 today, and that is, the second definition is this. It's the recognition of the difference between one thing and another. So in that way, there's a godly form of discrimination, and here's what I mean by that. Jesus said, look out for sheeps in the sheep that are dressed in wolves' clothes. I'm sorry, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. (laughs) Sermon one, the second and third one would be better. We have to learn how to discriminate because not everybody teaching is solid. And not every idea that comes into your mind these days is something worth keeping. So in order to live the beautiful life, in order to, to fulfill God's destiny for our lives, we have to learn how by the power of the Holy Spirit to discriminate, sort things into categories, truth from lies, idea worth keeping, an idea worth ejecting. But it's, it's not easy, is it? Uh, there's so many messages that fly at us today. Uh, I feel like at Lifeway, part of my job is to do email. I feel like a professional emailer some days. Part of what I do is just keep, you know, that game of getting the inbox to empty. And I've noticed that the junk mailers have gotten really good. And so the subject line will read, checking on you. That makes me feel all warm inside. Somebody's checking on me. But I click inside there and it says, uh, Ben, your, co- your company could use some consulting. I'm just checking on you. How about we set up a Zoom call? And I'm noticing more and more that people have gotten gifted at hiding their motives and their intentions in messaging. And John, in this letter, what he's going to say to us uh, throughout the generations is, there's always going to be some that when they teach, They're trying to sneak a little something in. And you'd better be careful what you believe, what you take in, what you incorporate, because not everything that comes at you is something worth uh, believing and following. You gotta learn to listen. You gotta learn to discern. And so he writes this in 1 John chapter four, just four verses today. 
Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now, it's already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So John says, do not believe everything that you hear. Run a series of tests to make sure that this person is legit, that they're truly from God and they're not making this stuff up. Uh, if you read the full chapter, first chapter, First uh, John chapter four, which I don't have time to cover all the verses today, but the back half of the chapter is the behavior test. Uh, the proof is in the pudding test. Is it doesn't matter what a person says, it, it has to match up with how they live. So in order to really and truly believe someone, they have to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. It has to match up. And uh, so often, unfortunately today, that people who have public platforms or people who speak or talk or write well, when you begin to look behind the curtain at their personal life, it doesn't match what they write or say. It's one of the greatest and easiest ways to tell if somebody is truly sent from God. One of LifeWay's uh, female authors, Jackie Hill Perry, recently she put out a tweet, and I thought this was so good. Uh, she put out a tweet that said, there are people in our local churches that have far more godliness than half of the famous Christians that we look to. It's observable, too, because we can get beyond what they say and get close to who they really are. That's the essence of authentic discipleship, and that's what we need. I took a screenshot of that one because I thought, that's right on point. It's sometimes just because a person has something to say that people want to hear, it doesn't mean that they're actually living it. So if you read the back half of 1 John chapter 4, John deals with that. But what I want to focus on today is what I call the doctrinal test or the belief test, the idea test. Is, is, the, is the thing that they're even saying consistent with all that God has said? Is it, is it true to Scripture? Can it be trusted? And so I like the way that the message paraphrase renders verse one. My dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are a lot of lying preachers loose in the world. Because there are so many bad ideas in the air, John is telling believers, be careful how many you buy into because many of them are lies. And so what John's really gonna do here, he's gonna do three things. He's gonna warn you in two specific ways, and then he's gonna reassure you in a very comforting way. So let me walk through the bones of his argument. First of all, the first warning is this, and you just heard it. Look out for religious liars. All throughout the world, there are people who are making money and becoming famous of, of lies they're making up about God and his word. And you gotta be careful about that. So the ultimate question that you have to ask is, why are they here? Why is there such a thing as religious hucksters or religious liars peddling information that's inconsistent with what God has said? Well, the Bible blames, I don't know how that you'll receive this information based on what worldview you come from. I don't know what brought you to church today. I don't know if you're a Bible believer or if you came in with a friend, if you're new to the Bible, if you're old to the Bible. But what I'm about to say is gonna either rub you the right way or the wrong way based on the worldview that you're immersed in. The Bible gives a supernatural answer or explanation for why there are liars today. The Bible blames a dark, 
demonic force originating with a certain creature named Satan. And you might think it's a far-fetched idea that such a, a creature exists today. Jesus had no problems with it. Not only did Jesus have no problems with it, he addressed it over and over again as a primary reason why he came to the earth, to the, to the religious Jews. He said this in John chapter eight, you are of your father, the devil, and you wanna carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, so I'm about Satan, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and he is the father of lies. I get this, when I was a kid, I didn't grow up in a church family, when I was a kid I went to the dentist. And in those days, in dental offices, you found these little illustrated children's Bibles right on top of the magazines. So I grabbed this illustrated children's Bible and I began to thumb through it, and it was the first time in my life that I ever saw the devil. Uh, the first time I experienced the devil was at the dental office. Sorry about that. And so I, I was sitting there, and I don't know what it is about me. I'm a very visual learner, so once I see something, it sticks in my head like dog hair to black pants. I mean, it's just there. And I saw this image, and it was the first time that I ever visualized Satan, that I ever actually tried to see him. And I actually Googled this image in the old children's Bible, and I found it. I'm gonna show you what I saw that day in the 80s in, in the dental office. And it's this painting. All right, let me tell you what you're seeing here. It's this painting of Jesus in the wilderness, and, and I, I'm not exactly sure this is consistent with Scripture, because the Bible never says that Satan looks like a, a, a caped, hoofed, horned villain uh, like from the badlands of Narnia. Uh, creative liberties were certainly taken in the image, and yet... There's also Jesus, and there is Jesus. Uh, look at him there. He, he's got this uh, great outfit on. It's clearly a windy day, and he's like a, a Baptist that used to be Pentecostal. He's feeling the worship. He's feeling it. And, and this is the first time I've ever thought about the idea of spiritual warfare, like being a real thing. And even though this image may be a little bit outside of the bounds of Scripture, it does capture the idea that is taught all throughout Scripture and that there, that there is this roaming lion. There is this powerful force that is covering the earth. He's the ruler of the air, and, and his main focus is to destroy the people of God and the movement of God. He wants to destroy God's will for your life. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your home. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy any movement of the church. Wherever the Holy Spirit is at work, that's what he wants to come against. Scripturally speaking, you cannot read the Bible without getting this idea page after page after page. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, he's there. And so the supernatural worldview that we swim in makes it that the natural worldview that we swim in makes it very difficult to grasp supernatural categories. I think we just need to name that as a challenge today. We teach this to young people. They're growing up in a world that's embraced naturalism. When we teach them the Bible, we're teaching them supernaturalism. That is, the word super means above. There's something above nature. Ephesians 6.11, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can do what? You can stand against the schemes of the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be alert. 
Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith. James chapter four, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think one of the things that John's trying to do to help you live this beautiful life is understand that you were born into a world that's in the midst of a great spiritual war and don't let anybody tell you different that it's anything other than that. That there are liars in the world who are children of the father of lies and if you aren't careful, you will unknowingly begin following those lies. And so part of the role of the church, perhaps one of the greatest roles of the church, is to teach truth in such a way that as people grow up, as they mature, they can quickly discern truth from error because they've been so immersed in scripture. Warning number one, there are a lot of religious liars out there. Warning number two, the most lethal lies out there make less of Jesus. Now John, beginning in verse two, he really focuses on on probably a lie that was spreading throughout the day, making less of Jesus' divinity. He says this, now this is how you know with the spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even is already in the world. You ever play that game of Jenga? Uh, the point of Jenga, you've got this tower of wooden blocks, is, is to remove the one block that doesn't make the whole thing fall. And John says there is one block that when you pull it out of our faith system, the whole thing tumbles and that is anything that belittles, diminishes, or reduces Jesus. And in this case, it was the incarnation, a big word that means to put skin on. So God put skin on in Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh, and anyone who tries to tell you he was just a moral man, or just a good man, or a miracle worker, or a prophet, is telling you a lie. And so John says, I'm concerned about this. It's getting out into the churches. People are beginning to believe this. It is a central truth of Christianity. And if the, if the devil wins here, he wins the whole thing because our entire faith system is built on the power and uniqueness of Jesus. And so Jesus claimed to be God. He, he claimed to be God in a physical body. He made no bones about it. He said, tear this temple down three days. I'm bringing it back up again. And people revolted at the idea that he claimed to be the son of God. Who is this man that thinks he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, you're right about that. So you can't read Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and declare anything different that he believed himself to be the son of God and proved it upon the cross and the resurrection. And people were questioning this and they were twisting arguments and they were causing the saints to wonder if they had followed the right idea. Now, here's what we have to our advantage 2,000 years later. Jesus Christ is still the most famous person in world history. Uh, A few years ago, there was a large online research project that was conducted based on algorithms, uh, based on the amount of searches, the times people put names into Google. Uh, Out of that, they were able to find out who is searched the most. And that when it was done, the headline read this. I thought, I got a kick out of this. The top of the headline said, now the other image about uh, this one. Jesus, the most famous person in the world, Justin Bieber, 8,633. I'm sorry, Bieber, you're, you're a lot of behind Jesus. And I love the article. This is what the article said. The significance of Jesus is shown in his lasting fame. 2,000 years after his death, we're still talking about him. We don't see the same thing happening for Bieber. 
You guys are the eight o'clock crowd. It was a little tougher this morning. <laughs> Jokes get better with every service, right? So, so why is Jesus still the most famous person on the planet? I mean, do we ever stop and think about that? Why are we still talking about him? If you want to make money on magazines, put Jesus on the cover. I mean, why do you think you can't ever chuck check out at Publix or Kroger without seeing the face of Jesus on the cover of some magazine? I mean, it's just constant. Just Google Jesus on the front of magazines, and you're going to scroll down for a long time. So uh, National Geographic, as you saw that, uh, the real Jesus. National Geographic, putting Jesus right on the cover. Time Magazine, the Jesus Revolution. Newsweek, forget the church follow Jesus, and you just look down over and over and over again, Jesus remains the topic of conversation. Why? Because he was the leader of some Palestinian cult a couple of thousand years ago? Possibly. Or could it be that the reason that Jesus is still being talked about today is because he was exactly who he claimed to be and proved himself to be, which is the Son of God. Something happened in the first century that historians have no explanation for, that out of this little cult came this explosion of the church, and it began growing in momentum, generation after generation after generation. Nothing's been able to stop it. Jesus said the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The church is a miraculous eruption from the person and incarnation of Jesus. And John says, of all the things you teach the church, of all the things that you talked about in youth group, of all the things we get in children's ministry, of all the things that the church embraces, if we stop talking about this one central truth, we have stopped talking about the thing. And that is, in the fullness of time, he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has to stay the focal point in the room. He's gotta be the thing that everybody sees when they come into the church. And any church that begins to deviate from that, any preacher that begins to preach something else, stay away from it because it's leading to lies. So keep Jesus in the center and beware that until he comes again, there's gonna be this spirit of antichrist, this pervasive spirit that's always working against the power of Jesus. That's if you believe in supernaturalism. So John says this, and we've got to talk about the Antichrist today, which is not a popular topic in churches. But in verse three, he says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, this, this question just has to be handled because it comes up in the text, and who is the Antichrist? Now, uh, this is not a primary issue. I wouldn't even call it a secondary issue. I'd put it in like the third or fourth ring of disagreements among Christians and things that we argue about. But we do argue about who the Antichrist is. Uh, there are some Bible-believing Christians who, who find scriptural support to believe that the Antichrist is a capital A. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a charismatic person that comes before the big finish. And in the time of the tribulation, this person uh, raises himself up and becomes almost a godlike human ruler that deceives many people. And this all happens before the end of time, before Jesus comes again. And some see the Antichrist as an earthly tyrant. So uh, in every generation, we vote for the person we think is the leader of the Antichrist movement. So Hitler got a lot of votes. Then he died. Before Hitler, the Protestant reformers tried to put it on some popes they didn't like. Uh, in our day, Osama bin Laden was leading the votes until he died. Uh, and, and, and books perpetuate some of this thinking. Uh, years ago, there was a little series that did fairly well called Left Behind. 
sure some of you read the Left Behind series. It was a riveting series. But in that series, uh, the interpreters of the end times, Tim LaHaye and others, saw that the Antichrist was this powerful central figure that comes before the, the big finish. And why, why, where's he getting that from? I can tell you there's verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2 says, For that day, so I'm at the end day, the final day, it will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. That seems actually very compelling. That there seems to be this man of lawlessness that rises up at the end before the great apostasy who is the Antichrist. And there's uh, Bible-believing Christians that, that believe that. Now, there are others, however, that see that the Antichrist is Satan himself. And anybody that follows along the line of Satan is, in a, in a sense, Antichrist. And I think there's good support for this as well. Let me give you an example. There was a moment when Peter was Antichrist. Uh, Jesus kept talking about going to Jerusalem and dying on a cross, and that was very contrary to Peter's dreams for Jesus and his dreams for himself. And so he pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, stop all this talk. Nobody likes this. This is a downer message. And Jesus did not do well with Peter's opposition. It says this, Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now, was Peter possessed by a demon? I don't think so, but Peter was doing what Peter does, speaking without a filter. And the words coming out of his mouth were not true to what God desired. I think in 1 John chapter four, if we're being fair to the text, I think John is really talking about this pervasive spirit that's working its way into churches that is anti to Christ's will for them. In this context, and so he's telling them that, that there is uh, this constant desire in the church to, to deviate from the idea that Jesus is Lord and Savior and he was who he says he was. Now let me ask you this. Um, after you hear these warnings, how comforting is the reassurance? Because the reassurance that he gives next is, is gold. He says this in verse four. Now you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The word Satan actually means the accuser. He's the one that brings accusations against you. I actually like calling him the shamer. Shame uh, is should language. Uh, shame is when I'm sitting alone and think I should be this or I should be better at that or I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that, and we're constantly shaming ourselves for what we should be doing. And that's an accusation. You're being accused in those moments. And whenever the devil's doing his greatest work in my life, he's shaming me. And I'm living a lot of my life in shame, wondering why I'm not enough. Or maybe even dreaming of some future moment when I'm not going to be enough, when my family needs me to be enough. And so shame says you're not enough. Ultimately, that's the message it sends. You're not enough. And John comes along like this uh, grandfatherly old man. He's one of the only apostles that lived to be an old man. And he's looking at all these young Christians. And I think with a, with a spirit full of Christ, he says, you are enough. The one that is in you, don't worry about it. 
the one that is in you is greater than the one that's in the world. So if you just stay close to him, you don't have to worry about him. He who is in you is greater than the one that's loose in the world. So keep your eyes and your life and your faith centered on the conquering one, who is Jesus Christ, God with skin on. And yet we all struggle with shame, don't we? Uh, recently, I was uh, reading a book by Stephen King. Don't judge me. And it was actually his book called On Writing, where he describes how he writes and how he came to learn to write. And he tells in it the story, the first time he had the courage to write a man-made, made-up story, and he put it in writing, eight pages, scrawled on pieces of paper. He copied it, put a title page on it, and sold it at school. He had 40 copies in his, in his bag, and they began to sell. Kids bought his stories. And then he got called into the principal's office where there was a teacher there named Miss Hissler. And Miss Hissler said to Stephen King, why are you wasting your talent writing these silly stories? And there's this quote from Stephen King. I've never quoted him a sermon. I probably won't ever again. But he wrote, she waited for me to answer that question, but I had no answer to give. I was ashamed. I've spent a good many years since, too many I think, being ashamed about what I write. I think I was 40 before I realized that almost every writer of fiction and poetry has been accused of some, by someone of wasting his or her God-given talent. The reason that quote caught my eye is because my experience of being a pastor and my experience inside my own body is that we as believers, we spend way too much time being ashamed. We lose sight of the fact that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We have the power, and he died to give it to us. And the same spirit that raised him up is the spirit that lives in us today. And so God fills in the gaps for us when we don't feel like we are enough. Now, I wanna get to some questions today. Uh, whenever I preach a sermon, I always try to think, what are some different questions that if people could come to the microphones, they might ask? And I try to think about it from three different categories. A seasoned Christian, someone that's been around the Bible for a long, a long time, what would they ask about this text? And then how about somebody who just showed up who hadn't been to church in 30 years? What would they ask? And then maybe a student in the student ministry, because they always ask the best questions. They ask the questions the adults are afraid to ask. And so here's three questions I think come from 1 John chapter four. A seasoned Christian might ask this. You mentioned the fall of Satan and other angels. Why does the Bible say nothing about this? And that really is a good question. You know, uh, we watch the Star Wars movies and we appreciate prequels when they go back and tell us what happened before it happened. The Bible doesn't do that. In fact, in, between Genesis one and Genesis chapter three, something significant happened there because in Genesis one, God creates everything and calls it good, but then Genesis chapter three, here comes this slithering serpent into the garden and how did he become bad? The Bible doesn't answer that question other than to indicate there was some kind of great fall in the heavens before Genesis chapter three happened. And there's hints of it along in scripture but there's a lot that's left to mystery because God doesn't feel like he has to fill in all the blanks for us. But there is this one passage in Isaiah chapter 14 that theologians point to that does give us some indication that perhaps this is speaking of that moment. In Isaiah chapter 14, uh, it's talking, Isaiah is describing the judgment of God and an earthly ruler, but then he kind of chases a tangent that something doesn't seem to line up with an earthly ruler. 
almost like a prophetic word. And he says this, shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations. You've been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. And there are passages like this throughout the Bible that seem to suggest that the great problem with Satan was that he was created beautiful, but it wasn't enough for him. That he wanted to ascend into the heavens and to be God. Don't you find it interesting that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, it says they were naked and they felt no shame about it. There wasn't a thing called shame yet. And the reason that there was no shame was because the shamer hadn't yet entered the world. He is the source of shame and the source of lies. And so we get some passages throughout scripture that teach us that. A good-hearted skeptic asked this question, how can Christians continue to believe in heaven and hell, angel and demons? Has science not moved us beyond such superstition? So I was a science major in college, biology and chemistry. Great preparation for Christian publishing, I know. I didn't know myself very well then. But I did learn a lot about science in four years of being in the laboratory, and this is what I learned about science. And it really frustrates me when people go beyond science for what is not science. Science is, it's based on a certain way of doing things. It's based on what is observable, repeatable, and experimental. Science makes a hypothesis, tests the hypothesis, and confirms whether it's true or false. So the very foundation of science is built on the idea of what we can see, repeat, repeat, and prove with empirical evidence. And so I'm thankful for science. I'm double vaccinated because of it. We all have great benefits in our lives because of science. What, what really bothers me is that we are unwilling to admit the limitations of science. And I'll give you a perfect example. When I was a little boy, I recently told my family this, it's been a secret my whole life, but when I was a little boy, I used to periodically hop off the swing set in my backyard and I would lay flat on my back on the grass and just stare up into the sky. And I would feel the blades of the grass kind of poking my neck and I would look up into the sky and I would always see an airplane making uh, a little line across the sky and I would just sit there and feel the immensity of the sky. Just how you almost feel like you get swallowed up in it on a clear day. And I remember thinking this thought that we don't think enough about of adults, and that is, how deep is it? Like, how deep does it go? How far do you have to go before there's something else? And science has an answer for that. Just Google it. 41.5 billion light years, which is fine. You can make it 100 billion light years. I don't care. But what comes after that? These kind of questions get beat out of us as we get older and older. The answer, science says, is infinity, which I think is a really fancy word for we don't have a clue. And I think if we get too scientific, we stop asking the ultimate questions of life, 
And that is, why do I lay in the grass as a 44-year-old adult on a jog sometimes and just wonder how far out there does it go? And why am I down here? And why do I feel this burning sensation in my chest that life is supposed to matter? I feel afraid for scientists sometimes because those really are the ultimate questions and science will never be able to answer them. So if you stumbled into the room today and you questioned supernaturalism, I could give you all kinds of logic, but a better exercise would be just go lay in the grass for an hour and look up into the sky and ask yourself the question, what does infinity mean and how far does it go? Student asked me this question. If, truly, if Jesus truly lives inside of me, then why do I still struggle with fear and with self-doubt? I'm gonna let you know a little secret that I wish someone had told me when I was 17. That never goes away. You're not gonna graduate out of that. In fact, the older we get, the deeper Jesus calls us into places of faith. That's been my experience. I told you I'm a visual learner. Um, recently I saw a painting that just rocked my world. It caused me to think about something in a way that I'd never thought about it before. There's a story about Jesus, uh, Jesus and Peter. And uh, Jesus shows up on the water and tells everybody in the boat, hey, come out and try it. You gotta experience this. 11 men in the boat said, can't do it. One guy had the guts to step out on the water and walk. And artists have tried to paint this in a thousand different ways. And if you just Google it, you'll see all kinds of depictions of what Peter was feeling and what, what actually happened that day when he walked on water. And so the, in this picture, which is one that I've always kind of accepted, is that Peter was doing just fine, but he, he started to kind of sink a little. It was, it was getting a little scary. And so at that moment, as soon as he became afraid, Jesus reached down and pulled him up and reassured him. And I've always kind of thought about it that way, that just the moment where we stumble, Jesus catches us before we have to get too down into the deep. But then someone painted this picture, and it totally changed the way I, I thought about the story. It never really says how deep he went down. What if Jesus allowed him to experience the deepest fear of his life as an adult? Because only then he would recognize that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The reason that teenagers and students struggle with self-doubt is because human beings struggle with self-doubt. And as you get older, and as you mature in your walk with Christ, it never really goes away. You just learn to cope with it better. You begin to realize that he's let you sink many times before, sometimes deeper than you wanted to go. But he promises every single time to be there to pull you out. And whenever I'm preaching, I always wanna be aware that there's some people in the room at all times in the church 
that feel like that picture. They're here, they need something because they feel like they are sinking two and three feet every day. And maybe that's you here today. And the thing you needed the most is the thing that Jesus brought you today, the message that he who is inside of you is greater than the one who's inside of the world. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through in your marriage, with your family, with your kids, with your career, whatever feels like it's spinning out of control, whatever feels like it's gonna swallow you up, whatever imagined catastrophe you have out there in the distance, that moment where you're not gonna be enough, when you're not gonna be able to solve it, when you're not gonna be able to, to fulfill God's calling in your life, in that moment is when your greatest opportunity for faith is expressed. That's when you gotta believe that Jesus not only came, he came and showed that he's more powerful than everything else, and he is powerful enough for you. That is what the church can never stop teaching. So I wanna give you an opportunity today as we close, I just wanna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to ask yourself the question, in what area of your life do you feel like submerged Peter? You can't fix this. You can't work your way out of this. You're terrified what's gonna happen. You're overwhelmed with worry and anxiety. That's you today, just in your own spirit. What, what Jesus is asking you to do is just reach up your hand. He's there. He's ready to pull you up. And so if you're here today and you're a non-religious person and this is a confrontation with biblical truth and it makes you desire a relationship with Jesus and you would love to be connected with the one who has all the power in the world, if that's you today, you can reach out right now and you can say, Lord Jesus, invite me in and I will take your hand. Forgive me of all my sin. Wipe away all my mistakes. Give me that perfect love that casts out fear. Today I become a believer. Today I become a Christian. Today I become a follower. Today I become a child. I accept you into my heart today. Maybe you're here today and you've already made that decision, but you've got now a test that's before you and it's calling you to exercise faith in a way that makes you very uncomfortable. So whatever it is, I just want you to name it to the Lord. I want you to admit that you're drowning, that you can't swim out of it. I just want you to say these words to yourself. He that is within me is greater more powerful than he who seeks to destroy me. Lord Jesus, we are like little children. And when John says, dear little children, he's talking to us because we never really lose that childlike feeling. We feel out of control. We feel incapable of fixing problems. And we cast ourselves at your feet one more time. Lord, whoever needed this message today, I pray that we go forth in this place with inspiration and power and a sense of confidence that you're in control. And if there's any person in this room or on Zoom by video who prayed to receive Christ, Lord, that they would take the next step to get connected to this great church and bond with brothers and sisters who are in the struggle. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of Rolling Hills Podcast Network. 
We can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast or Men's Leadership Network or the Rolling Hills Women As You Go Podcast and more. If you wanna learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and stay up to date with what's happening and ways you can connect. Hey, we are so thankful 